Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we've been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be destroyed. We might no longer be enslaved to sin, for whoever has died is freed from sin. But if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all. The life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God for the gospel. That's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The time that we have this morning, I want to focus on the verses from the text we just read, but these verses in particular, so I'm going to just, these couple of verses I want to reiterate here, therefore, we've been buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life, and then toward the end of our reading, the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. In commenting on this passage, one of my favorite New Testament scholars, Beverly Roberts Gaventa, suggests that if we understood better what Paul meant here, especially this bit about considering ourselves as dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. If we understood better what they meant, she said, what these words meant, she said that we would respond in spontaneous and joyful worship. You're dead to sin. You are made alive to God. You have died with Christ. You're made alive to God in Christ Jesus. She said, if you really get that, if it really starts to sink into your heart and mind, what she's suggesting is, is that, you know, you don't, you don't wonder what to do when you're at a, I'm sorry, Sox fans, I, I have sort of drifted into being a, a settled Cubs fan. However, because I'm a minister of the gospel, I still celebrate Sox victories. What I'm about to say is, you know, if, if you're at Wrigley and there's a grand slam that's hit, you don't wonder what to do if you're a Cubs fan. You get up and you say, you know, you're celebrating. Gaventa says, if we understood the, the depth of what is being said here by Paul, she said, our response would be immediate joy and immediate gratitude and vibrant worship vibrating through our whole bodies. We don't often respond to the gospel in that way and we don't often respond to these verses in that way, and I'd say myself included in that. Um, and that we don't, that we don't, she suggests, is because we've underestimated what God has accomplished for human beings. We've underestimated what God has accomplished for human beings in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now, part of the problem is, is that we don't appreciate that the sin that Paul has in mind here 
is sin with a capital S. The sin that Paul is talking about is, is the power at loose in the world that deludes human beings into imagining that God, if there is one, is not one who has our best interests at heart. That this sin with a capital S, that's the power that slithered into God's good creation when our primordial parents succumbed to the temptation of evil personified, the Satan, the enemy of human flourishing, when they succumbed to his temptation. If you remember that story, God said that he would provide richly for all that Adam and Eve needed. But rather, and man, can't you relate to this at some level? Haven't you had this experience in your life? God gives you all these good things, and then you... And then, lo and behold, we want to go and do the one bad thing that's not going to be good for us. God said he would provide richly for Adam and Eve, everything they needed. But rather than trusting their benevolent creator, they desired to have the one thing that God said they shouldn't have. And you know what the rest of the story is. We're living into the rest of that story. At the heart of sin with a capital S is the desire to live one's life on one's own without proper regard for God, under one's own power and reason. To not trust God's provision and refuse to acknowledge God's authority or give him his due. Now to be sure, sin with a capital S begets the sins of omission and commission that we importantly confess to God and each other. We did that today on the way to communion. But what Paul has in mind here in our reading this morning, what the sin that Christ died to and that we died to in him, is the fundamental human problem wherein we oppose God's place in the world. This failure to acknowledge our creatureliness, the failure to worship God, that's what Paul argues in Romans is the chief and fundamental problem of humankind. Failure to worship God. Remember, Paul begins making his case for what the gospel addresses. He makes that case in in the category of worship, in the language of worship, the terms of worship. When back in Romans 1, he paints a picture of where humanity went off the rails. He says it all goes back to a human failure to worship God, a human failure to acknowledge that we are made by God and that we owe our very lives to him. You alone our God. That's the beginning of the gospel. Our lives belong to a good God. And when things go off the rails, God does not abandon us, but he sets forth to reunite us to him. In Romans 1, they knew God, Paul says, human beings. They did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, their senseless minds, were darkened. And so it shouldn't be surprising that when we take a wide-angle view of Romans, we see that the restoration of human beings comes by renewing and putting into right order the affections of our heart. Now that this is happening is displayed when the gospel makes us able to, and these words come from Romans 12, if 
few chapters later than Romans 6. The proof that the affections of our heart are being renewed, that we've died to sin with a capital S, is that we're able to, in Paul's word, present our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual worship. So Romans 1 points to a failure to worship God as humanity's most dire and radical problem. Our text this morning, Romans 6, reminds us that it is God alone who sets us free from the sin with a capital S that keeps us from being alive to God in worship. And then a little bit later in Romans 12, we're given a picture of what redeemed humanity looks like. Those whom the gospel has freed and enabled to worship God with our whole selves. Now, I suspect that some of you are getting a little bit bored right now because that's a lot of theology for one brief homily. So I'm going to stop with that. And I'm going to ask you this question. What is the take-home here? What's the take-home? What's the implication if all of, of what's said here is true? It is to recognize that at the heart of the gospel, and this is what Jesus is talking about in in the passage in Matthew's gospel that led up to communion. And this is what the psalmist is talking about in our call to worship when he says, God, you alone are God. You alone are the one that can make our hearts new. You alone are the one that can redeem us, our creator. You are also our redeemer. Take home here is to recognize that the heart of the gospel is a call for us to confess that God alone can change our hearts and that only a changed heart can enable us to love God and others with our whole hearts. Only God alone can give us new hearts and only with new hearts can we love and welcome others as God has loved and welcomed us. And so... What are we to concentrate on? Well, tell you one thing. It's not our moral achievements. That's not what we're supposed to concentrate on. What we should concentrate on are the affections of our heart. But we do like to focus on other things, don't we? We demonstrate that we like to focus on other things when we organize our lives around a need for human approval give one example. Or when we set up a moral standard that has to be met by others before we will love them as God loves us. You know, when we live in that kind of way, we demonstrate we do not understand the creature-creator distinction. We imagine that it's up to us to decide whether we're going to welcome other people. It's up to us to decide when we're welcomed and good enough to be accepted by God. All of that, anti-gospel, anti-confession of, here's our confession. Our banner is, you alone are God. And when we live as if that weren't true, when we set up some kind of of moral standard that, that tells us when we can and can't accept someone else, when we imagine that we've got to earn our way into God's good graces, you know, that's going to cause us to live in a certain way that will not enable us to drink up God's love and share it with other people. What God is looking for from us, and that's what 
we were reminded of in our gospel reading this morning. What God is looking for for us is that we might become a people who more and more take up our cross, lose our lives, and are enabled to love Jesus with our whole heart. I mentioned uh, one of my favorite New Testament scholars a few moments ago, Beverly Roberts Giventa. And, uh, and she's the one who says, if you really understood what was being said here, you know, you'd be happy. <laughs> you happy this morning? You'd be happier when you leave, right? Because it's hot in here. But, I mean, here's, but, but here's the truth of the matter. You know, God wants us to live in joy and live in gratitude and celebrate that he knows we're creatures. Will we just admit that we are? Will we admit that, that God knows better than we do? Will we celebrate that, that the one who made us is the one who loves us the best? The one who knows us the best is the one who loves us the best. And will we let that shape the joy of our heart? Will we let it shape the affections of our heart? So I want to give Beverly her due here. It was tempting to quote from her too much, you know. I want to end with this quote. Being dead to sin, quote, starting Beverly Gaventa, being dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus comes about by virtue of God's intervention in human life through Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. Human beings are no more able to accomplish this new life than they created life to begin with. For that reason, the newness of life that Paul invokes is to be celebrated with joy and gratitude, not transformed into yet another list of things to do. If I was the kind of preacher that thought it was my job to micromanage your lives, and I'm not, and aren't you glad, and so am I. Uh, but if I could tiptoe a little bit in that direction, not much. Let me just say that our homework this week is to be joyful that God loves us. To be joyful that we have died to sin with a capital S in Christ and to anticipate that that joy and thanksgiving can shape us into people who love Jesus with our whole hearts and are able to then offer that love freely to everyone around us. This is the gospel. Go forth in joy and gratitude. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.